Due to the graphic nature of this murder case, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes dramatizations and discussions of murder and assault that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. July 18, 1966, was supposed to be a celebration for the Bobby Fuller Four. The band was soaring in popularity thanks to their hit song, I Fought the Law, and they had just finished a massively successful tour of the East Coast. From the outside, they were rock stars living the dream. But inside the band, everything was falling apart. The Bobby Fuller Four had decided that it was time to go their separate ways, and it was time to tell Bob Keen the news. If Keen knew what the band was thinking when they showed up that day, he didn't let on. He just invited three of the Bobby Fuller Four into his office to sit and wait for Bobby. A few minutes turned into half an hour, but still no Bobby. The band started getting impatient. Eventually, that impatience turned to worry. It wasn't like Bobby to miss a meeting, especially one as important as this. Bobby Fuller never made it to that meeting. Soon, Bob Keen and the rest of the Bobby Fuller Four discovered that this summer day in 1966 wasn't just the end of their band. It was the end of Bobby Fuller's life. This is Unsolved Murders, True Crime Stories, a Spotify original from ParCast. I'm your host, Carter Roy. And I'm your host, Wendy McKenzie. Every Tuesday, we dive into the world of a real unsolved murder and try to solve the case. You can find episodes of Unsolved Murders and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. This is our final episode on Bobby Fuller. Last week, we covered Bobby's life and the events leading up to his demise. This week, we'll cover the mysterious circumstances around his death and who might have been responsible. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with a personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. In 1966, 23-year-old Bobby Fuller was living his dream. His band, the Bobby Fuller Four, had successfully escaped the Southwest and found rock stardom in Los Angeles. And with songs like I Fought the Law, Topping the Charts, and an upcoming international tour on the books, it seemed like Bobby had nowhere to go but up. But by the time summer came around, trouble was brewing for the Bobby Fuller Four. Contract disputes with their label, Mustang Records, had started to tear the band apart. 
The label seemed to care more about Bobby than his bandmates, Jim, Dalton, and Bobby's younger brother, Randy. When the band finished their East Coast tour and returned to Los Angeles in July of 1966, the tensions came to a boil. The Bobby Fuller Four had decided to break up, even if that meant Bobby had to break his contract with Mustang Records. On July 18, 1966, the Bobby Fuller Four scheduled a meeting with Mustang label head Bob Keen to tell him the bad news. But Bobby never showed up. So, what? He's not coming? He'll be here. He promised. Look, why don't we just reschedule? I don't think there's anything too pressing to talk about. Your tour went great. We'll have you boys out to Europe in no time. I guess Bobby doesn't even feel like he needs to show up. He used to have our backs, you know. We used to be a team. Cool it with that, Jim. You boys are bandmates. You're business partners. That's just the thing we're here to tell you. We're not anymore. The Bobby Fuller Four has officially broken up. That's what Bobby would tell you if he cared enough to show up. I guess we'll see you later. Are you kidding me? I don't care what happened on the tour bus. I have a contract right here that says you're a band as long as I say you are. But no matter what was going on within the band, it wasn't like Bobby to just blow off a meeting. So Randy Fuller called their mother, Lorraine, to see if she knew what happened to Bobby. No, Randy, I don't know where he went. Last night he left in a rush. He said he'd be right back, but he's still gone. I've been checking the parking lot for his car every half hour. Please tell me when you find him. It's like Jack all over again. I can't go through this anymore. Later that day, on one of her trips down to the parking lot, Lorraine Fuller was excited to see that Bobby's car had finally returned. But as she approached the figure sitting in the front seat, her relief turned to dread. Her son was dead. His body was propped up in the front seat. He was covered in bruises and scrapes like he'd been beaten. And there was a tube clenched in his hands. Lorraine traced the tube with her eyes to the passenger seat, where it disappeared into a can of gasoline. She bolted inside to call the police. When authorities arrived and opened the car door, the smell of gas was almost overwhelming. Behind them, Lorraine Fuller wailed uncontrollably until a cop had to escort her inside to let them conduct an investigation. Another dead rock star. Looking like suicide. Suicide by gasoline. Pretty strange way to go, don't you think? You know these types. Have to be unique or something. I suppose, but what, he drove himself here and then huffed gas until he died? Wouldn't he have gotten sick from the fumes first? And how do you explain the dirt on his slippers or the bruises and cuts all over his arms? Something smells funny and it isn't gasoline. I think that- Hey, listen up. This one was suicide, all right? Open and shut. The police investigation wasn't exactly extensive. They struggled to pull Bobby's body from the car. It had already become stiff and inflexible. They also refused to dust for prints at the scene, and they barely searched for potential witnesses to question. They did, however, speak to Lorraine Fuller. So, would you say your son was depressed? Not quite. Bobby was always upbeat, the life of the party. I mean, sure, he felt down sometimes, just like all of us do. Right. Sure. I get it. 
Maybe one day he gets a little too down, has one too many, decides the rockstar thing isn't all it's cracked up to be. Wait, no, that's not what I'm saying. You didn't have to, ma'am. The police were quick to rule Bobby's death a suicide. His cause of death was gasoline inhalation. Since they claimed they found no evidence of murder, there was no investigation. Within a few days, the Bobby Fuller case was closed. But the idea that Bobby committed suicide didn't sit right with those who knew him. He had even made plans with Randy to open a nightclub in El Paso, Texas, just a few days before his death. And the evidence didn't seem to add up either. If the police's story was true, then Bobby drove himself home, parked, and then immediately started inhaling gasoline fumes until he died. But when the police found him, his body was already starting to stiffen. Rigor mortis normally sets in two to six hours after death. Additionally, Lorraine Fuller had checked the parking lot at least once an hour that day, nervously waiting for her son to come back. There's no way she would have missed him for over two hours. And then there were the cuts and the bruises and his dirty clothes. Bobby's slippers were covered in dirt like he had been dragged. It may not have been hard evidence of murder, but it certainly seemed suspicious. That wasn't the only strange thing that happened that night either. Only hours after the police discovered Bobby's body, two of his bandmates, Jim Reese and Dalton Powell, reportedly had a strange run-in at their Los Angeles apartment. Here's to Bobby. We gotta catch whoever did this, Dalton. Someone has to pay for this one. Who the hell is that? Wake up, Dalton. You invite anyone over? Shh. I see someone. They're coming up this way. And there's something underneath that guy's shirt. I think it's a... We gotta go! Get up! Out the back door! Now! If police had known about the mysterious gunman, they may not have been so quick to rule Bobby Fuller's death a suicide. Unfortunately, Jim Reese never told them about the incident. It turned out that this wasn't the first time he'd had a run-in with the wrong people, some with gang ties, and he likely thought bringing in the cops would just make things worse. Even if police had known, it may not have helped. The department was in shambles during the Bobby Fuller case. LAPD Chief William Parker had died from a heart attack just days earlier. Parker had led the force for nearly 40 years, and his sudden death was a shock that threw the entire LAPD into disarray. The short and flawed investigation into Bobby Fuller's potential murder may have just been a result of bad timing, Or maybe someone saw the loss of Chief Parker as an opportunity to bribe the right people and quickly get Bobby's death ruled a suicide in the midst of all the upheaval. But if that was the case, Bobby's killer must have been rich and powerful enough to influence an entire police department. And it turned out that Bobby had made a few rich and powerful enemies in the months before his death. People with the means to get away with murder. Coming up, we'll take a closer look at the suspects who may have played a role in Bobby's death. Hi, listeners. Here's a show I think you'll enjoy. When it comes to love, every story is unique. Some play out like fairy tales, seemingly meant to be. Others defy the odds to achieve happily ever after. 
in our love story, the new Spotify original from Parcast. You'll discover the many pathways to love as told by the actual couples who found them. Every Tuesday, our love story celebrates the ups, downs, and pivotal moments that turn complete strangers into perfect pairs. Each episode offers an intimate glimpse inside a real-life romance, with couples recounting the highlights and hardships that define their love. Whether it's a chance encounter, a former friendship, or even a former enemy, our love story proves that love can begin and blossom in the most unexpected ways. Follow Our Love Story free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. And now back to the story. 23-year-old Bobby Fuller was still riding on the fame of his hit single, I Fought the Law when he suddenly died in Los Angeles in July of 1966. While the LAPD quickly ruled his death a suicide, the strange, confusing evidence seemed to point to murder. At least, that's what Bobby's family thought, and so they decided to take up the investigation themselves. In the days after Bobby's death, his father Lawson headed to Los Angeles. His wife Lorraine was already there. She had moved there to be closer to Bobby, but was now stuck dealing with the fallout from his death. Lorraine had already struggled to recover from the death of her first son, Jack. Losing Bobby was almost too much for her to bear. As Lawson tried to console his wife, his brother Charles headed out to L.A. to be with their grieving family. Unfortunately, it turned out that Charles did more harm than good. Charles was somewhat of a loose cannon. Perhaps it was grief, rage, or a mix of the two— but while picking up his bags at the airport, Charles got into a fight with a fellow passenger. When Lawson arrived to pick up Charles, he saw that his brother was in trouble and he jumped in to help. At some point, Charles pulled a knife on an airport worker. Before Lawson could even fully realize what was happening, both he and Charles were arrested. Once they were at the police station, though, the tables turned. Charles wanted answers about Bobby's death, and Lawson did too. Sir, please, hold still for the mugshot. I'm not holding still until you answer my questions. You're not the one in charge here, sir. Who is in charge here, huh? Apparently no one, since Bobby Fuller got murdered and nobody seems to care. Will you tell your brother to calm down? Calm down? He has a point. What kind of police station is this that you won't investigate cold-blooded murders, calling it a suicide and letting killers walk free? You know what? Okay, look, I'll do you a favor. Just get out of here and we'll call it even, all right? We're not leaving until we get answers. Why won't you investigate Bobby Fuller's murder? If you know what's good for you, you'll keep your mouth shut. Lawson couldn't stop thinking about his strange run-in with the police. It was clear to him that the LAPD knew something they weren't reporting and that they were actively trying to bury the murder case. 
Bobby's father decided he had to take matters into his own hands, so he hired a private detective. The investigators started interviewing Bobby's close friends. First was the band's manager, Rick Stone, who had been with Bobby just hours before he disappeared. According to Stone, Bobby was interested in trying LSD, which was still a relatively new drug in 1966. He had discussed the possibility of taking some with Stone and Randy that night. A few minutes later, Bobby got a call and left. Stone assumed it was from a drug dealer, but there was a more sinister possibility. A few weeks earlier, Stone and Bobby had been driving when they were forced to pull over by two mysterious men. Bobby told Stone to stay in the car while he went to talk to them. When he got back into the car to drive away, he refused to say a word about what the men wanted. Bobby didn't speak for the rest of the drive. It's possible that those two men were the same people who showed up at Jim and Dalton's apartment the night of Bobby's murder. But the private investigator never had the time to look into it. Just as he was starting to dig into the case, the detective found himself in a scary situation. Can I bum a cigarette? Oh, sure. Help yourself. These things will kill you, you know. That's what I've heard. That's not the only thing. Excuse me? I heard you've been looking into things you shouldn't. That true? Uh, Hey! Uh, What are you... Some things can't be found out, you got me? Let this case die with Bobby Fuller. (coughs) Yes, I understand. The private investigator abruptly dropped the case. Lawson Fuller was less than pleased. He had paid for answers, but all he'd found were more questions. Around that same time, Lawson learned from Randy that their manager, Bob Keene, had taken out life insurance policies on all the band members, and he might make a small fortune off of Bobby's death. The timing seemed suspicious. Keene had been struggling with money for a while. When he signed the Bobby Fuller Four, he even asked Bobby to bring personal equipment all the way from El Paso to the studio in L.A. because Keene couldn't afford his own. The success of the Bobby Fuller Four was helping get Keene back on his feet financially. But if he'd caught wind that the band was breaking up, maybe he decided to take matters into his own hands to keep the money coming in. And so Lawson headed over to talk to Keene himself. Ugh, it reeks in here. I don't smell anything. Are you drunk? Depends what you mean by drunk. Listen, Lawson, glad to see you. I loaned Bobby a lot of money for equipment. Something like 12000 if my math is right. With him gone, that debt falls on you. You're out of your mind. That was Bobby's musical gear to begin with. He brought it all the way from El Paso. If anything, it's you who owes us money. Well, now, Mr. Fuller, let's not get heated. We're only talking business here. You're nothing but a leech, Keen. You won't be seeing a single penny from my family. You'll be hearing from my lawyer. Once Randy heard about his father's conversation with Keen, he decided to pay their old label head a visit. No one has ever said what happened during their get-together, but afterward, Keen never contacted the Fuller family again. One thing was certain. 
Keen was desperate for money. He'd secretly fallen into drug addiction. By the time Bobby died, Keen was reportedly spending almost every penny he could find on speedballs, a sometimes deadly mixture of cocaine and heroin. Earlier that year, Keen had even gone so far as to sell the rights to Bobby Fuller's music to a notorious New York producer named Morris Levy. Levy had a reputation around the music world for using his mob connections to get better deals on his artists. Levy even strong-armed his musicians into giving him writing credits on all the songs he produced. This earned him twice the money from the record. And if any of his musicians complained about it, then they wouldn't be his musicians anymore. Levy had such a wide reach in the music industry that his nickname was The Octopus. And thanks to Keen, he had his tentacles around the Bobby Fuller Four when Bobby died. That should have made Levy a prime suspect in his murder, if the LAPD even bothered to investigate. Levy had access to some of the most powerful organized crime in the country, and he was set to make a lot of money off of the Bobby Fuller Four, at least until the band decided to break up. It's possible that Levy had Bobby roughed up and followed around by his goons in order to try and convince him not to leave his contract. That would explain the two men who stopped Bobby's car to talk to him. But Bobby would have been worth much more to Levy alive than dead. Perhaps Bobby's death was an accident, the result of a shakedown gone too far. In any case, Levy also likely had the power to lean on the LAPD and make sure they didn't look at Bobby's death too closely. We'll never know exactly why the police refused to investigate the mystery of Bobby Fuller's death. But if there was anyone influencing their decision behind the scenes the person responsible was likely Morris Levy. Regardless of whether it was the result of coercion or simply poor police work, Bobby Fuller's case floundered. It took two months until authorities finally got around to performing an autopsy on his body in September of 1966. The coroners confirmed Bobby's cause of death as asphyxiation due to inhalation of gas fumes. But the coroners didn't seem very confident with the circumstances. In the report, they checked both boxes for suicide and accidental. And next to both check marks, they drew giant question marks. Lawson Fuller pressured the police to officially rule Bobby's cause of death as accidental, but they wouldn't do so until 2015. The case remained virtually uninvestigated. Lawson accepted defeat. He brought his family back to El Paso, and the Fullers tried to move on. For the most part, they did, until 1988, when a surprise witness to Bobby's last night suddenly came forward. Coming up, we'll meet Melody Dawson, a woman who claimed to have some answers about Bobby's final few hours of life. And now, back to our story. By the late 1980s, the death of mid-60s rock icon Bobby Fuller was a distant memory for most. Despite his family's numerous attempts to get the police to reopen his case over the years, there was no new information about the night of Bobby Fuller's death, at least until 1988, when a woman named Melody Dawson came forward with some long-overdue evidence. Up until 1988, it was widely accepted that Bobby's mother, Lorraine, was the last person to see him alive before he disappeared. 
But according to Melody, Bobby Fuller had spent the night at her place. In the mid-1960s, Melody was a regular at PJ's, an L.A. venue where the Bobby Fuller Four frequently played. She met Bobby through Mustang Records investor Larry Nunez, and the pair hit it off immediately. Not everyone was reportedly a fan of Melody, though. Bobby's bandmates suspected that she worked for the record label and that their affair was just a way to keep tabs on Bobby. That apparently didn't phase Bobby. He would regularly show up at Melody's and they were together just hours before he died. At least until a mysterious phone call sent him running out her door. This was all information that the police desperately needed to hear back in the summer of 1966. But it turned out that Melody had a good reason for waiting over 20 years to share her side of the story. Okay, we're rolling. Can you tell me that again? I said I was with Bobby the night he died. And where exactly were you? We were at my place, of course. He came over to my place quite a bit back then. Back up a little bit. Let's start at the beginning. Oh, sure. I called Bobby and told him to come over. He seemed upset, like there was something on his mind. I'm not sure what. Then at 1 a.m. he got a call. I'm not sure the person's name, but it was some woman. I asked if I should be jealous. He shook his head. Said it wasn't like that. Said it was a woman from New York, and he had to go meet her. Hmm. What were they meeting about? Honey, I never got the chance to ask. But as Bobby was leaving, he said it was something about his contract. I think he was about to quit. This seems like something the police would have wanted to know back in 1966. Look, Bobby's death was something he didn't talk about. Melody didn't go into any more specifics, but it wasn't hard to draw a line from the mysterious female caller and the other New Yorker in Bobby Fuller's life, Morris Levy. Melody Dawson also let a few other things slip in her interview. She said that Larry Nunez told her that Bobby had been dragged and placed in the car after he died. When Randy Fuller heard all of this, he knew he needed to dig deeper into his brother's death. He'd never stopped searching for answers to Bobby's mysterious death, but after 20 years, he likely assumed the mystery would never be solved. But thanks to Melody, everything had changed. Randy not only found her story interesting, but her timing seemed like a clue in itself. Because right around the same time Melody came forward, Morris Levy was tied up in a murder investigation of his own. In the early 1980s, Levy's longtime protege, Nathan Big Nat McCalla, was brutally murdered, and the FBI suspected that Levy was behind the hit. Over the next few years, the FBI investigated Levy and uncovered evidence of extortion and conspiracy. In 1988, he was convicted and sentenced to a decade in prison. If Melody Dawson only felt safe coming forward after Morris Levy was safely behind bars, it seemed to implicate Levy even more in Bobby Fuller's murder. But even with this new information, Randy Fuller still couldn't get the LAPD to bother with his brother's case. The guy who wrote I Fought the Law? The Clash song? They just covered it. No, it was back in the 60s. Bobby Fuller? His death was supposedly a suicide, but the pieces didn't quite add up. And now, this new witness seems to point towards murder and a cover-up. Well, 
If we can get her on record, we can bring it to the chief and get the case reopened. This seems like it could- Don't bother. Leave Bobby Fuller in the past where he belongs. But chief, this Fuller thing just doesn't add up. His death is on the books as accidental, but there's nothing accidental about sucking a tube of gasoline. Your tone is teetering on insubordination, rookie. You're both on traffic duty for the next two weeks. Maybe it'll help you learn to listen. Wait, hold on a minute. Don't make me send you down to records. Finally, in the 2000s, Randy Fuller decided to take the failed investigation into his own hands. In 2014, he wrote a book about his brother's supposed murder and spelled out his personal feelings about what actually happened that terrible night in 1966. In the book, called I Fought the Law, The Life and Strange Death of Bobby Fuller, Randy lays out a compelling case that Morris Levy was responsible for Bobby's murder. But he doesn't believe that Levy meant to kill him. Bobby's death was likely the result of a mob shakedown gone wrong. According to the theory, Bobby died accidentally after a brutal beating, presumably in an attempt to keep Bobby from breaking his record contract. The fact that Levy and Keene took out a life insurance policy worth over $8,000 was also suspicious, though the policy clearly stipulated that it wouldn't pay out if the cause of death was poison, gas, or fumes. Randy also details some other opinions about Bobby's death in the book. Rick Stone, the band's tour manager, reportedly believes that Bobby's death was a complete accident. Stone is convinced that Bobby left that night to try LSD, and at some point during his acid trip, he fell and died. That would explain his strange cuts and bruises. According to this theory, the people he took acid with decided to stage his death to look like suicide to avoid charges. But these are all still just guesses. If anyone out there knows the truth about Bobby Fuller's death, they are staying quiet even after all these years. But that doesn't mean they'll stay that way forever. Randy's book reignited a conversation about Bobby's alleged murder. And visibility about the case is the highest it's been since the 1960s. It might just be enough to convince a key witness to finally come forward. Yes? Hello? Hey, Pops. It's me. Well, well. What an old guy do to earn himself a special Sunday morning call. I was reading this book the other day, and it got me thinking about you, actually. You were on the force back in 1966, right? L.A.'s finest. I was so young that I can't believe they even trusted me with a gun. You should have seen my mustache. Took up half my face. <laughs> Did you ever hear anything about the Fuller case? The what? He was this musician, Bobby Fuller. Died in a real strange way. This book says that there might have been some kind of conspiracy in the police department. Like, to cover up his murder. I haven't heard that name in a long time. Pops? <sighs> While the case has yet to be cracked, looking at all available evidence, I think it's possible Morris Levy had Bobby killed and then covered it up. Levy was a mobster who was later investigated and convicted for racketeering charges. And if Bobby was planning to back out of his contract, Levy wouldn't have been very happy. I agree. Levy had the connections and money to make the police look the other way. And let's not forget that Levy and Keene had a life insurance policy on Bobby. 
If he was going to stop playing music, then he was probably worth more to Levy dead. Regardless, Bobby Fuller's death is another tragic case of a talented musician gone too soon. It's impossible to say how he might have helped steer the course of 1960s music if he had survived. For Bobby's friends and family, his death is still an open wound half a century later. And without answers or even a proper police investigation, it's only left to fester. Thanks again for tuning into Unsolved Murders. We'll be back next Tuesday with a new episode. For more information on Bobby Fuller, amongst the many sources we used, we found I Fought the Law, The Life and Strange Death of Bobby Fuller by Miriam Linna and Randall Fuller, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Unsolved Murders and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. If we live till next time. Unsolved Murders True Crime Stories is a Spotify original from ParCast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Michael Langsner with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Isabella Way. This episode of Unsolved Murders was written by Frank Spiro with writing assistance by Giles Hofseth. The amazing cast of voice actors includes Tom Bauer, Eddie Lee, KG Tang, Laura Faye Smith, and Jen Wong. It stars Wendy McKenzie and Carter Roy. Remember to follow the newest Spotify original from ParCast, Our Love Story. Every Tuesday, catch an intimate glimpse inside a real-life romance with couples recounting the highlights and hardships that define their love. Listen to Our Love Story free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts.